0: chapter three part three of the legends of genesis by hermann gunkel translated by w h carl this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three the literary form of the legends unity and coherence of parts from the above observations we conclude that in the primitive legends everything is subordinated to the action in other literatures there are narratives in which the action is merely a garb or a thread while the chief concern is the psychologic study the brilliant conversation or the idea but not so with a primitive hebrew legend the primitive man demanded from his storyteller first of all action he demands that something shall happen in the story to please his eye But the first essential in such a story is to him its inner unity. The narrator must furnish him a connected series of events, each necessarily dependent on the preceding. One of the chief charms of the early legend is just this – to show how one thing resulted from another. The more plausible and necessary this connection appears, the more attractive seems the whole story. A famine forces Abraham to go to Egypt, but he is afraid of being killed there on account of his beautiful wife. Therefore, he reports his wife to be his sister. Deceived by this, Pharaoh takes Sarah and makes presents to Abraham. Therefore, God punishes Pharaoh. In consequence of this, Pharaoh releases Sarah but permits Abraham to retain the presence. Sarah has no children, but desires them. Therefore, she gives her maid to Abraham as concubine. Thus, Hagar conceives by Abraham. Hence, Hagar despises her mistress. This offends the proud Sarah most deeply. Therefore, she causes Abraham to restore Hagar to her. And mistreats her as a result hagar flees into the desert here god has compassion on her and promises her a son observe how in all such cases each successive member is linked to the preceding one how each preceding member appears as the natural cause or at least the antecedent of the succeeding one we are in the habit following a sort of tradition, of calling this kind of narrative childish, but in so doing we are only partially right. These narratives, then, are exceedingly tense in their connection. The narrators do not like digressions, but press with all their energy toward the mark. Hence they avoid, if possible, the introduction of new features in a given story, But seek an uninterrupted connection. Rarely, indeed, are new assumptions introduced. But good style demands the announcement of all assumptions as near the beginning as possible. In pursuit of this method, it is considered permissible to skip over the necessary consequences of what has been told, provided only that those features stand forth which are essential to the continuation of the action. There must be nothing too much, and nothing too little. The narrator does not spring aside, but the hearer also must not be allowed to spring aside. The narrator holds fast to him, so that he can think only what the narrator wants to have him think. Variations on a Given Theme many of the legends are fond of varying a given motive consider how the story of eden makes everything dependent on the nakedness and the clothing of man and how the relation of field and field tiller pervades this whole legend how the story of joseph's sail into egypt treats the coat sleeve and the dreams how the story of jacob's last testament Chapter 47, verse 29 and following. Constantly connects his actions with his bed. In praying, he bows at the head of the bed. Chapter 47, verse 31. In blessing, he rises up in bed. Chapter 48, verse 2. In dying, he stretches himself out upon his bed. Chapter 49, verse 33. And so on. In this, the rule is, quite in opposition to our sense of style, to repeat the expression every time the thing is referred to, so that one and the same word often runs through the story like a red thread. Undoubtedly, this custom originated in the poverty of the language. But the narrators of our legends follow it in order to produce an impression of unity and simplicity precisely because of this inward connection in the story it is possible in many places where our received text shows gaps or distortions to recognize the original form of the legend the text criticism is in this point very much more positive than in the case of the prophets the laws and the songs which lacked this connected condensation plausibility demanded. Furthermore, the course of the action must be probable, highly credible, even unavoidable. Nowhere must the hearer be able to make the objection that what is being told is inconsistent with what has preceded, or with itself. Hagar, when elevated to too high a station, could not fail to grow haughty. And Sarah, could not help feeling offended true the probability aimed at by these old story-tellers was different from that of which we speak their understanding of nature was different from ours for instance they regarded it as entirely credible that all the kinds of animals could get into the ark furthermore the way in which they speak of god and his participation in the affairs of the world was naiver than is possible for us of modern times. They regarded it as quite plausible that the serpent should have spoken in primitive times, that Joseph, the grand vizier, should look after the sale of the corn in person. Hence it would be quite unwarranted to speak of the arbitrariness and childish recklessness of the legends simply because the assumptions of the narrators are impossible to us in modern times. Only in a very few places can the eye of the modern reader, even though trained for criticism, detect improbabilities. In this line we may ask why Joseph, who was so much attached to his father, failed to communicate with him all the long years. Even after Hagar and her son were once rescued, were not the dangers of the desert sure to recur every day? But the auditor of ancient times doubtless did not ask such questions. He was more willing to surrender to the narrator, and was more easily charmed. He was also more credulous than we are. Compare, for instance, chapter 43, verse 23. Sustained Interest On the other hand, in a well-told legend, the incidents are not so simple that one can guess the whole course of events from the first few lines. If it were so, the legend would lose its interest. No one cares to hear of things that are self-evident. On the contrary, our storytellers are dealing with what they regard as a complicated situation, whose final outcome cannot be surveyed in advance by the hearer. This leads him to listen the more intently. Jacob wrestles with a supernatural being, which of the two will conquer. Jacob and Laban are equally gifted in cunning, which will succeed in deceiving the other. The shrewd but unwarlike Jacob has to meet the dull but physically superior Esau. How will he manage him? abraham has to go down into egypt and how will he fare there thus all these stories are more or less exciting the childlike listener holds his breath and rejoices when the hero finally escapes all the threatening dangers the narrators are very fond of contrasts the child cast out into the desert becomes a mighty people a poor slave languishing in prison, becomes the ruler of Egypt with all her abundance. They try, if possible, to focus these contrasts into a single point. At the moment when Hagar is in utter despair, God takes compassion on her. The very instant when Abraham raises his arm to slay Isaac, he is checked by God. Lot lingers and Jacob holds the divinity fast until the dawn is at hand. The next moment will surely bring the decision. And where this intense interest is wholly lacking, where there is no complication of interests, there we have no real legend. Thus, the account of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, is scarcely to be called a story. And yet, from verses 2 and 26, we can conjecture a form of the account, in which more personages appear, and in which the world is created after a conflict of God with chaos. In like manner, the accounts of Abraham's migration, and of his league with Abimelech, are not real legends, but only legendary traditions which have originated probably from the decay of earlier and fuller legends. LEGENDS, NOT PURE INVENTION. As we have seen in the second division of this treatise, the legends are not free inventions of the imagination. On the contrary, a legend adopts and works over certain data which come from reflection, tradition, or observation. These fundamental data have been treated in the preceding pages. Our present task is to consider the part taken by the imagination in the development of the legends. With this subject we have reached the very heart of our investigations. As we have shown above, many of the legends seem intended to answer definite questions. That is, these legends are not the thoughtless play of an imagination, acting without other purpose than the search for the beautiful but they have a specific purpose, a point which is to instruct. Accordingly, if these narratives are to attain their object, they must make this point very clear. They do this in a decided way, so decidedly that even we late-born moderns can see the point clearly, and can infer from it the question answered. The sympathetic reader who has followed the unhappy, happy Hagar on her way through the desert, we'll find no word on the whole story more touching than the one which puts an end to all her distress. God hears. But this word contains, at the same time, the point aimed at. For upon this, the narrator wished to build the interpretation of the name Ishmael, or God hears. Or what word in the legend of the sacrifice of Isaac, stamps itself so deeply upon the memory as the affecting word with which Abraham, from the depths of his breaking heart, quiets the questioning of his unsuspecting child. God will provide. This word, which made God himself a reality, is so emphasized because it answers the question after the etymology of the place, Jeruel other legends reflect historic events or situations, and in such cases it was the duty of the narrator to bring out these references clearly enough to satisfy his well-informed hearer. Thus, in the legend of the Flight of Hagar, the actors are at first mere individuals, whose destinies are interesting enough, to be sure, but at the climax With the words of God regarding Ishmael, the narrator shows that in Ishmael he is treating of a race and its destinies. Hebrew taste is especially fond of playing about the names of leading heroes and places, even when no etymology is involved. Many of the legends are quite filled with such references to names. Thus, the legend of the deluge plays with the name of Noah. Compare chapter eight verses four, nine and twenty one. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac with Jeruel. Chapter twenty two verses eight, twelve and thirteen. The story of the meeting of Jacob and Esau with Mahanaim and Penuel, and so on. Thus these legends are rich in points and allusions they are, so to speak, transparent. Even the one who reads them naively and simply as beautiful stories finds pleasure in them. But only the one who holds them up against the light of the primitive understanding can catch all their beautiful colors. To him, they appear as small but flashing and brilliant works of art. The characteristic feature of the Hebrew popular legends, as contrasted with other legends, if we understand the matter, consists in the flashing of these points. The art of the storytellers consists in avoiding every suspicion of deliberate purpose, at the same time that they give great prominence to their point. With marvellous elegance, with fascinating grace, they manage to reach the goal they have set, they tell a little story so charmingly and with such fidelity to nature that we listen to them all unsuspecting. And all at once, before we expect it, they are at their goal. For instance, the story of Hagar's flight, chapter 16, wishes to explain how Ishmael, although the child of our Abraham, was born in the wilderness. To this end, It draws a picture of abraham's household it shows how by an entirely credible series of events ishmael's mother while with child was brought to desperation and fled into the wilderness thence it came that ishmael is the child of the desert in many cases the task of the narrator was very complex He had to answer a whole series of different questions, or to assimilate a quantity of antecedent presumptions. Thus, one variant of the legend of Babel asks the origin of the difference of languages and of the city of Babel. The other wants to know the source of the distribution of races, and also of a certain ancient structure. Or again, the story of Abraham at Hebron undertakes to tell not only the origin of the worship at Hebron, but also to explain the birth of Isaac and the choice of his name. Here, then, the task was to unite the differing elements into unity. And it is just here that the storytellers show their art. The prime motive furnishes the leading thread of the story. The subordinate motives they spin into a single scene which they introduce into the body of the story with easy grace. Etymologies Subordinate Features The etymologies usually constitute such subordinate motives. Thus, in the story of the worship at Jeruel, a scene is interjected which is to explain the name of the place, God Sees. But this little scene, the dialogue between Abraham and Isaac, chapter 22, verse 7 and following, expresses so completely the tone and sentiment of the whole story, that we should not be willing to dispense with it, even if it had no particular point of its own. In other cases, the artists have joined together two leading motives. Then, they invented a very simple and plausible transition from one to the other. Thus, the first part of the legend of Hebron presents the establishment of worship there under the guise of the story that abraham entertained the three divine visitors there the second portion which is to account for the birth of isaac simply proceeds with the given situation having the three guests enter into a conversation at table and therein promise isaac to abraham it is the most charming portion of the task of the interpreter of genesis to search for these matters, and not only, so far as this is possible, to discover what is for us the oldest meaning of the legends, but also to observe the refinements of artistic composition in the stories. Summary. We have to do, then, even in the oldest legends of Genesis, not with aimless, rude stories, tossed off without reflection, But on the contrary there is revealed in them a mature perfected and very forcible art the narratives have a very decided style finally attention should be called to the fact that the narrators scarcely ever express a distinct opinion about persons or facts this constitutes a clear distinction between them and the later legends and histories worked over under the influence of the prophets of course the narrators of the early legends had their opinions but they are by no means objective but rather intensely subjective and often the real comprehension of the legend lies in our obtaining an impression of this opinion of the narrator but they almost never give expression to this opinion they were not able to reflect clearly on psychological processes. Wherever we do get a more distinct view of such an opinion, it is by means of the speeches of the actors which throw some light on what has happened. Consider, particularly, the utterances of Abraham and Abimelech, chapter 20, or the final scene of the story of Laban and Jacob, chapter 31, verse 26 and following at the same time this suppression of opinions shows most clearly that the narrators especially the earlier ones did not care to proclaim general truths it is true there are at the basis of many of the legends and more or less distinctly recognizable certain general truths as in the case of the story of the migration of abraham a thought of the value of faith and in the story of Hebron, the thought of the reward of hospitality. But we must not imagine that these narratives aimed primarily at these truths. They do not aim to teach moral truths. With myths, as has been shown, this is different, for they aim to answer questions of a general nature. An Early Israelitish Romance Out of the type of legend which has been sketched in Essentials on the preceding pages, there was evolved, as we may discover even in Genesis itself, another type relatively much nearer to modern fiction. While the story of Hagar's flight is a classic instance of the former sort, the most conspicuous example of the second is the story of Joseph. It is necessary only to compare the two narratives in order to see the great differences in the two kinds. There, everything characteristically brief and condensed. Here, just as characteristically, everything long spun out. The first striking difference is the extent of the stories. Since the earlier form was in vogue, we see that men have learned to construct more considerable works of art, and are fond of doing so. The second is, that people are no longer satisfied to tell a single legend by itself, but have the gift of combining several legends into a whole. Thus it is in the story of Joseph, so also in the jacob Esau, laban story, and in the legends of Abraham and Lot. Let us inquire how these combinations came about. In the first place, related legends attracted one another. For instance, it was to be expected that legends treating the same individual would constitute themselves into a small epic, as in the stories of Joseph and of Jacob. Or the similar, and yet characteristically different, legends of Abraham at Hebron and Lot at Sodom have become united. Similarly, in J a story of the creation and a story of paradise are interwoven. Both of them treat the beginnings of the race. In P, the primitive legends of the creation and of the deluge originally constituted a connected whole. In many cases that we can observe, the nature of the union is identical. The more important legend is split in two, and the less important one put into the gap. We call this device in composition, which is very common in the history of literature, instance, the Arabianites, the Decameron, Gilblas, and Huff's tales, enframed stories. Thus, the story of Esau and Jacob is the frame for the story of Jacob and Laban. The experiences of Joseph and Egypt are fitted into the story of Joseph and his brethren similarly the story of abraham at hebron is united with that of lot at sodom devices for uniting several stories in order to judge of the artistic quality of these compositions we must first of all examine the joints or edges of the elder stories usually the narrators make the transition by means of very simple devices from one of the stories to the other. The transition, par excellence, is the journey. When the first portion of the Jacob-Esau legend is finished, Jacob sets out for Aram. There, he has his experiences with Laban, and then returns to Esau. In the story of Joseph, the carrying off of Joseph to Egypt, and later the journey of his brethren thither, are the connecting links of the separate stories similarly in the story of abraham and lot we are first told that the three men visited abraham and went afterwards to sodom now we must examine how these various journeys are motivated the sale of joseph into egypt is the goal at which everything that precedes has aimed the journey of his brethren to egypt Is prompted by the same great famine which had already been the decisive factor in bringing joseph to honor in egypt and these experiences of the brethren in egypt are based upon joseph's advancement thus we see that the story of joseph is very cunningly blended into a whole there is less of a unity in the story of jacob but even here there is a plausible motive why Jacob goes to Laban. He is fleeing from Esau. In other respects, we find here the original legends side by side unblended. On the contrary, in the story of Abraham and Lot, no reason is alleged why the three men go directly from Abraham to Sodom. That is to say, there is here no attempt at an inner harmonizing of the different legends but the narrator has exerted himself all the more to devise artificial links of connection this is why he tells that abraham accompanied the men to the gates of sodom and even returned to the same place on the following morning in this we receive most clearly the impression of conscious art which is trying to make, from originally disconnected elements, a more plausible unity. In the Joseph legend we have an instance of a much more intimate blending of parts than the frames of these other stories, a whole series of different adventures harmonized and interwoven. Epic discursiveness Another characteristic feature of the Joseph story is its discursiveness, which stands in notable contrast with the brevity of the older narratives. We find in it an abundance of long speeches, of soliloquies, of detailed descriptions of situations, of expositions of the thoughts of the personages. The narrator is fond of repeating, in the form of a speech, what he has already told. What are we to think of this epic discursiveness. Not as an especial characteristic of this particular narrative alone, for we find the same qualities, though less pronounced, in the stories of the wooing of Rebekah, of Abraham in the court of Abimelech, Genesis chapter 20, in some features of the story of Jacob, notably the meeting of Jacob and Esau, and the stories of the sacrifice of Isaac and various features of the story of Abraham and Lot also furnish parallels. Very evidently, we have to do here with a distinct art of storytelling – the development of a new taste. This new art is not satisfied, like its predecessor, with telling the legend in the briefest possible way, and with suppressing, so far as possible, all incidental details. But it aims to make the legend richer and to develop its beauties even when they are quite incidental it endeavors to keep situations that are felt to be attractive and interesting before the eye of the hearers as long as possible thus for instance the distress of joseph's brethren as they stand before their brother is portrayed at length there is evident intent to delay the narrative so that the hearer may have time to get the full flavor of the charm of the situation thus joseph is not permitted to discover himself at the very first meeting in order that this scene may be repeated he is made to demand that benjamin be brought before him because the aged jacob hesitates a long time to obey this demand and thus the action is retarded similarly In the story of the sacrifice of isaac the narrative is spun out just before the appearance of god upon the scene in order to postpone the catastrophe and intensify the interest the means that is applied over and over again to prolong the account is to report the same scene twice though of course with variations joseph interprets dreams for egyptian officials twice Joseph's brethren must meet him in Egypt twice. Twice he hides valuables in their grain sacks, in order to embarrass them. Chapter 42, verse 25 and following. Chapter 44, verse 2 and following. Twice they bargain over Joseph's cup with the steward and with Joseph himself. Chapter 43, verse 13 and following. And verse 25 and following. And so on. Sometimes, though surely less frequently, it is possible that the narrators have invented new scenes on the basis of the earlier motives, as with the last scene between Joseph and his brethren, chapter one. Quite unique is the intercalated episode, the negotiations of Abraham with God regarding Sodom, which may almost be called a didactic composition. It is written to treat a religious problem which agitated the time of the author, and which occurred to him in connection with the story of Sodom. These narrators have a quite remarkable fondness for long speeches, so great as to lead them to subordinate the action to the speeches. The most marked instance is the meeting of Abraham with Abimelech, chapter 20. Here Quite in opposition to the regular rule of the ancient style, the events are not told in the order in which they occurred, but a series of occurrences are suppressed at the beginning in order to bring them in later in the succeeding speeches. Thus, the narrator has attempted to make the speeches more interesting, even at the expense of the incidents to be narrated. It is also a favourite device to put substance into the speeches, by having what has already been reported, repeated by one of the personages of the story. Chapter 43, verses thirteen, twenty-one, and 30 and following. Chapter 43, verses 3, 7, and 20 and following. Chapter 44, verses 19 and following. The rule of style in such repetition of speech is, contrary to the method of Homer, to vary them somewhat the second time, this preference for longer speeches is as we clearly perceive a secondary phenomenon in Hebrew style, the mark of a later period. We observe this in the fact that the very pieces which we recognize from other considerations as the latest developments of the legends or as intercalations, chapter thirteen, verse fourteen through seventeen chapter 16, verse 9 and following, chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, verses 23 through 33, are the ones which contain these speeches. We may find this delight in discursiveness in other speeches of Hebrew literature also. The brief, condensed style of Amos is followed by the discursive style of a Jeremiah, and the same relation exists between the laconic sentences of the Book of the Covenant, and the long-winded expositions of Deuteronomy, between the brief apothebs which constitute the heart of the Book of Proverbs, and the extended speeches which were afterwards added by way of introduction, between the oldest folk-songs, which often contain but a single line each, and the long poems of art-poetry, interest in soul life. We do not always agree with this taste of the latter time. For instance, the story of Joseph approaches the danger line of becoming uninteresting from excessive detail. On the other hand, this discursiveness is, at the same time, the evidence of a newly acquired faculty. While the earlier time can express its inner life, only in brief and broken words, the new generation has learned to observe itself more closely and to express itself more completely. With this, there has come an increase of interest in the soul life of the individual. Psychological problems are now treated with fondness and with skill. Thus, in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, There was created the perfection of the character study. The narrator of the stories of Joseph shows himself a master of the art of painting the portrait of a man by means of many small touches. Especially successful is the description of Joseph's inner vacillation at the sight of Benjamin, chapter forty three verse thirty, and the soul painting when jacob hears that joseph is still alive chapter 45 verse 26 and elsewhere but while in these later narratives the incidental features of the old legend are still developed with greater detail on the other hand this very fact has naturally thrown the chief features somewhat into the background and made the original point of the whole less obvious This result has been further favored by the circumstance that the original points had in many cases ceased to be altogether clear to those of the later time. Thus, in the story of Joseph, the historical and etiological elements have lost importance. The difference between the two styles is so great that it seems advisable to distinguish them by different names and to limit the use of legend to the first, while we call the second romance. Of course, the transition between the two is fluctuant. We may call such transition forms as the story of Laban and Jacob, or that of Rebecca, legends touched with romance, or romances based on legendary themes. On the relative age of these styles, also an opinion may be ventured, though with great caution. The art of narrative which was acquired in the writing of legends was applied later to the writing of history, where, accordingly, we may make parallel observations. Now, we see that the oldest historical writing known to us has already adopted the detailed style. Accordingly, we may assume that this detailed style was cultivated at least as early as the beginning of the time of the kings, and therefore the condensed style must have been cultivated for many centuries before that time. However, it should be observed, this fixes only the time of the styles of narrative, and not the age of the narratives preserved to us in these styles. End of chapter 3